We're in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we're looking <clears throat> at verses 7 and 8 today. You may grow tired of reading the, uh, the beginning of the relevant portion of the passage each week, but I think probably uh, at the end of our study of a chapter, most of you can paraphrase, if not recite, the entire chapter as many times as we go over it. But it's also necessary that we read these things to uh, make sure that we remain in context as we look at uh, a new verse or new verses each week and also for uh, the times when we have visitors or maybe some of you who have fallen asleep at time uh, to remember what we had heard in the previous weeks and, and it's all always good to go back and look over those things and I, I don't think that we waste any time doing those uh, those things and I think it's a good practice uh, for the corporate assembly as well at, at home and private. And in fact, I, I don't think you would want your pastor studying a verse without looking at what comes before it and after it, right? But this morning we'll look at verses 7 and 8. We'll begin with the first verse of the chapter. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open your word, once again, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, purposed life's events, that we would be able to set aside time today, Lord, that we would uh, be uh, moved even to come here, Lord, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not come out of obligation, Lord, or out of ritual or any other behavior, Lord, but let it be because... Uh, we come for the joy of knowing and hearing about a risen Savior. Lord, if 
the passages to testify anything to us today. Lord, let it not be uh, as much of man as it is about the Christ. God, allow us to see uh, the true reason for every season, Lord, to, to see the subject matter of your gospel, Lord, and that be the Savior and his worthiness, Lord, his perfection, uh, his marvelous grace and mercy, Lord, and most certainly his righteousness. We ask that you would receive our worship today, Lord, and that you would uh, cause us to reap abundantly, Lord, the blessings that you have set aside for us in your word. And we just thank you for it, Lord, and ask that you would forgive us of our sin and trespasses or enable us to do the same uh, for those who trespass against us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're looking at verse 7, verse 8 this morning. And we've seen uh, quite a shift, it seems, at first, as we began in Hebrews chapter 1, with understanding that God is speaking to his people, and he's doing that through Jesus Christ. And now it seems that uh, he has moved from speaking to the Christ, and it seems that he is addressing man. But what we have understood in the past few weeks is that may not be the case exactly, although God is speaking to man in the person of Jesus Christ. He is not reminding simply uh, man of how desperate and how depraved he is. That is not the intent. He is reminding us of those things so that we may see the perfection of Christ. For what would it profit a man to know how sinful he is if he did not hear of the Savior who has made salvation possible, who has paid the sin debt? And of course, that, there would be no reason for that, right? But on the other hand, if one would hear about the Christ and not see man's sin, it is still glorifying to God. And for that reason, uh, the text most certainly speaks of Christ as being preeminent and eternal and, of course, the subject matter. And so uh, we read verse 1 this morning through 8. And what we have seen progressing in the past few weeks, four or five weeks, is that we have moved from... Uh, the priesthood of Christ in chapter 5 as we saw it and the qualifications thereof and how Christ is representing God to man and then we suddenly moved into spiritual immaturity. Why is that? It's because you have to recognize Christ as priest and, and that is sort of one of those elementary uh, teachings, if you will, that Christ is fulfilling all of Old Testament Scripture. He's fulfilling everything that God has ever said. And that is sort of the foundational basis. But what we're reminded of in chapter 6 is that there is a danger in not progressing. Why is that? Because uh, I believe the culmination of that this morning, that which has been veiled up until verse 7 and 8, is that the danger of not progressing is actually the danger of remaining in unbelief. That was problem with the Hebrew people of the time. They were familiar with religious systems and religious customs. Uh, they were Jews. They could recite. They could remember. They could maybe even give you a long list of laws. But the problem is that although they had heard of the Christ and they had been enlightened, as we saw in weeks previous, there was no application of those things. Indeed, we understand that we can come to know 
many things and never really understand them. We can hear a million times. In fact, if, if you don't believe this, just sit at home with an elementary school child. He can hear something a hundred times and not know how to do it. And that is where we get the teacher and the place of the parent that they would uh, over and over again emphasize these things until there's an understanding of how they work. This is what is being spoken to the Hebrew people. You should be teachers by now. Many times have you, as you've heard this, I, I've heard my mom get frustrated about things like that. As many times as you've heard it, you should know better. The problem is they were listening with deaf ears. And they were hearers and not doers. And this is not particularly a passage about spiritual infants. This is really a, a, a passage about spiritual ignorance. That the information is available. And, and don't take this as uh, an attack on anyone. Listen, ignorant, we can use the word and, and be hateful with it. Or we can just use it for its rightful intention. That, that the information is there, but we're not familiar with it. Just ignorant about certain things. When I'm ignorant about plumbing, I call Pat, you know. Or electricity, I call Charlie. And here... Uh, the penman of the Hebrews is relaying the message of the Spirit that you are ignorant when it comes to the Christ. You are ignorant when it comes to true salvation. You are infants, and what you cannot do is make a wise decision. What you cannot do is follow God because you are not familiar with the God of the Bible. It's a tough thing to say. It's a tough thing. Uh, message to receive and as it was needful then i believe it is also needful now because we have many who may confuse spiritual infancy with being saved but in a a babe sense and that may not be the case in fact we shouldn't be okay with professing christ and never moving on we should see that as a warning sign both for ourselves and for fellow quote-unquote members of the church. And I believe it will make more sense today than it ever has that, that Christ will, will separate the wheat from the tares because, you know, we have a responsibility in the church and as leaders of the church that when we accept membership into the church, we do our due diligence to make sure these are true followers of Christ. But the reality is that we do not know. We cannot say with all certainty that is why it remains for Christ to separate, because only he knows. And when we look at that, of course, that is a magnification of God's sovereignty as we move throughout the passage. That likewise, as these spiritual babes or these new believers or maybe unbelievers are being told, you know, you need to move from the milk, you need to move on to maturity, we must be reminded as well, we rely on someone else to be fed. We rely on Christ. And it doesn't mean that we can come and we can pin our salvation upon being good members of the church, upon arriving on Sundays and Wednesdays, upon cleaning the building or mowing the grass or any other thing that you may do if you may slip money in the offering box. Those things really don't matter. We pin our salvation on the fact that Christ is providing and most importantly, that Christ has provided. And in that sense, we'll see a new light shed 
on chapter 6 of Hebrews as we move into verse 7. Over the past weeks, we've seen the, the immediate and the supreme context as we should, and that being that the overall message of chapter 6 uh, thus far be speaking of Christ. By now you know that uh, there are faithful hearers of the word, and so may be some of you. But we should also be reminded that nothing, not even a single word of the text of the Scripture, not one single jot is written without testifying of Christ. Not one single line is written except that it bring light to the person of Jesus Christ in the life of the believer. That is the sole intent of the Scripture, is to shed light on who Christ is. If it is not, then the book is no good. Then all of the books are no good. But instead, it is to bring light of the person of Christ. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, deals with such enlightenment. It's telling you, look, this is the reason for the word. Here it is. Even some unbelievers have heard it. Even some unbelievers may be somewhat familiar with, with it that's to bring knowledge where there was once absent anything except ignorance in fact enlightenment has to suggest that there was first ignorance not only is it a reminder of what Christ is doing for his people as he's bringing us from one level of glory to the next to move into perfection but we must be reminded of the grace of God in that that we too were ignorant. Paul says in Timothy, he was once a blasphemer. He would love to continue in sin if it were not for Christ. The reality is that this is a message of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone, an urge uh, to trust in Christ and a reminder to be gracious. This is to bring knowledge to ignorance but it's also to create in us a desire to truly seek salvation. You're okay. This is the desire that a Christian should have. To not simply try to obtain salvation but to seek salvation because salvation is not simply in a set of rules or in a set of deeds or a set of works, but salvation rests in Christ. And if it rests in Christ, it's someone whom we must follow after. It must not merely be knowledge. That was the problem with the Hebrew way of thinking, that religion was knowledge and being able to put that knowledge down to paper and being able to follow that knowledge outwardly, but it never, without Christ, meant loving the knowledge, living the knowledge. It was an outward expression of something that did not have to exist inwardly. And when Christ comes in his earthly ministry, he's saying, listen, you can have all that you want on the outside, but the truth is that we're dealing with a matter of the heart. And that it begins not on the outside and working its way in to make you saved, 
but that it starts on the inside and it works its way out. This morning in Sunday school, uh, we dealt with a passage that really shows us what that looks like. I'm going to bring it up later, so I'm not going to tell you now. It means you have to listen. But we're wanting to not only have salvation, but to desire the Christ in whom is our salvation. Not merely knowing, but living according to what he has commanded. Christ indeed said that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This probably sounded pretty good to a Jew. Except for it came from Jesus. They were okay with conforming outwardly. The problem is what Jesus spake of was not simply outward, but it was inward as well. It's not so that we may simply know the gospel, that we can repeat it because uh, the best atheist debaters can repeat the same message that a, a preacher would send you from the gospel. They can say the lines. They can remember the text. It's not just knowing, but it's knowing and serving and following after that what we know. It's just a simple matter of obedience matter of being consistent we have a saying to practice what we preach many people know things many people know right from wrong yet many people choose not to do what is right it's pretty clear the gospel is also clear the law has been given morality is no longer subjective never really has been but it's rather objective, in that God has declared what is good, God has declared what is morally acceptable, God has declared what is right, God has declared what is righteous, and He's declared where the line of sin must be drawn, where it must be determined. Jesus was very clear about that. And what did He say? You've heard it said of old, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman lust after you've already done it in your heart he said listen here's where you thought the line was and you thought it was right before the action but i'm telling you the line was way back here and it began with your mind it's a battle of the mind a battle that cannot be won if we read this apart from understanding who christ is the mark that separates Good and evil is this line that God has determined. And although many may know, very few have mastered being able to discern it. Very few, even more, have mastered being able to restrain themselves from sinning against God. Psalm chapter 119 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What is the purpose of this word? That we may not sin. How may we not sin? It's to see that Christ was right and we've been wrong. That Christ is perfect. We've been sinful. And see, now it's causing the person, the hearer of this word, if he is truly to be devout to Christ and to be saved and to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he cannot trust in himself, but he has to trust completely in Christ. The separating mark that God has given is not the set of laws that these Jewish people love so much. It's not the set of moral codes or ceremonies or circumcisions or baptism or laying on of hands or any of these other things. The mark is the mark of Christ. It's not 
a level of schooling that we've obtained, which would be worldly. It's not a position of hierarchy in the church, nor is it a regard from fellow man and how he evaluates our outward appearance of our Christian life. People are fooled every day in churches. We can come and we can be good for an hour. And all we got to do is make it to the meal and then we can stuff our face and we're quiet then. There might not be a whole lot of sinning going on then. And then we just got to make it another hour. And then, hey, we've done it. We got him again, Jimmy. You know, that's the idea. That's what the church has, has promoted. That we just outwardly look like Christ for but a few hours and we have obtained salvation if we can just look good to everyone else. This is not the mark that Hebrews is describing. The mark that Hebrews is describing is the mark that the good shepherd himself places on the sheep. Now think about that. I don't think there's even a professing Christian that would not like to be identified as a sheep, right? You only got two or three choices. You got sheep or goat or sheep or dogs. I mean, you just pick it. 